Hey there, this is Josh Tyson. Welcome to In Conversation with UX Magazine. We're speaking this week with Greg Noodleman. Greg is a uh, mobile design strategist, uh, and he's, uh, he's worked with all sorts of Fortune 500 companies. He's also written a few books. Android Design Patterns is one. Designing Search is another. Uh, and his newest book is called The $1 Prototype, Lean Mobile UX Design and Rapid Innovation for Material Design, iOS 8, and RWD. It's all about how you can just use uh, some storyboards and a pile of post-it notes to, to bring your uh, mobile app ideas to life. It's pretty liberating stuff. So we talk about that. We, we talk a little bit about uh, how design is basically improvising. We talk about the grim necessity of killing your darlings. We talk about how kids really don't like making mistakes. It's a good talk. So uh, what do you say? Let's get to it. Here we go. Hi, Greg. Good to hear your voice. Uh, where, where, where am I talking to you from? Where are you? I am talking to you out of my office in Pleasanton. Good to be here. Well, good to have you. Uh, we can we can have some customary weather talk if you like. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be another gorgeous ninety degree day for uh, uh, all of you guys in uh, California. It uh, never rains, and uh, we would love some rain right now. I know. I feel bad for. For California, we've been getting tons of weird rain, but right now it's very sunny and nice here too. So, um, so I th- this might be bad form to bring up another person's book right away, but it uh, it was something that happened this morning that made me think of of our uh, talk, our upcoming talk. So um, when I woke up, my son came in our room and he's uh, he's got a uh, he's working with a reading tutor to get himself you know to get really prepared for second grade, and she was telling him that he really needs to work on recognizing periods and, and to pause when he sees a period. So I just picked up the book. It was on the nightstand. I was just going to read a couple of sentences to him. And it happened to be uh, well-designed, which is John Colco's new book. Uh, and I just picked it up and read this. An industrial designer working on the form of a new coffee maker might sketch hundreds or even thousands of slight variations in order to explore the form. Each sketch is provocative in that it prompts the designer to think of new possibilities. While the question, what if, is typically asked about products, it can be asked about market strategy, and that kind of goes off in a different direction. But but I uh, kind of turned to him, and I was just like, man, you you are really lucky to be living right now in this world, because uh, because of, of the idea of like embracing failure, and just and just having fun, and designing, and iterating, and, and, uh, and, and I, I'm not sure that, I mean, obviously in the past, there was a similar design process, but I, I feel like things are different now, and it's really kind of an exciting time. And, and your book seems to kind of agree with that idea too, because the one dollar prototype. I mean, what's what's more uh, easy to do and kind of efficient than that? Absolutely, I think I think we we really have have crossed the threshold from really thinking of design as this waterfall process of uh, of these, uh, for for lack of a better word, bearded bearded old men um, that. Sit on the mountain and, and dream up these these wonderful ideas that that pop complete completed with all the branding and and everything into their brains and then they just pass them down from the mountain onto the rest of us poor souls that that then use them and 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 just take them as is as gospel to this completely different approach which involves a lot of experimentation a lot of trying things out a lot of covering the entire design space with various sketches and, and different ideas 
and really trying them with the target audience. And that is indeed wonderful. I agree. And, and uh, another interesting thing to me that occurred to me that kind of relates to, uh, to kids is that, uh, you know, the, the notion of the $1 prototype, you're encouraging people to embrace failure, uh, which is, you know, kind of a lean methodology too, right? Like embrace failure, fail often, fail smarter, that kind of thing. Um, and, and I wonder if, it, I think it might be a little counterintuitive to human nature, or at least how we uh, think as kids. And, and it could just be my children, but they're, they're perfectionists about things. Like when they sit down to draw something, if it's not the way they want it the very first time, they get kind of pissed off. They're, they're hesitant to, to start over or to, or to yeah, to move quickly and, and tear off a new piece of paper and try again. So I wonder if maybe that's something that you've encountered uh, as you work with people and, and kind of show them how to use uh, your system. Uh, absolutely. I, I think that that's, that's the biggest obstacle, I would say, to adopting and, and to being a good designer, really. Because as designers, we know that the first thing is usually pretty bad and you have to iterate on it and, and get into this mindset of not falling in love with the very first idea that you get, but use it as a seed to grow this tender young plant that you then really put it for its basis. The, the, the trick there, I think, is, is really keeping that prototype very non-committed and, and very um, uh, inexpensive. And if you do that, then you automatically end up not spending as much time with it as you would to, enough to fall in love with it. So basically, you just go on a first date with your prototype, and then uh, uh, you end up seeing if it's a good fit. It's it's not it's not a committed long term relationship that takes weeks and weeks, but uh, just a tentative uh, coffee, if you will, with another person, and then you see if that's a good fit. To use a different example, we it's funny that you say that about kids because I just had a wonderful session with uh, some exchange students from Kazakhstan uh, with Silicon Valley uh, Innovation Center. And we just did a workshop yesterday with them. And that was the one thing that I kept emphasizing to them, just don't fall in love with your idea. Don't, don't spend so much time on the prototype that you fall in love with the deliverable. And it's really keeping the quality of the deliverable as minimal and as lean as you possibly can that really drives the whole process at least that was the really big thing for these guys that and and they really did get that so they they were able to put it aside and iterate and and that's a huge undertaking for somebody because you know once you have an idea you're like this is perfect this is going to work it's going to be fantastic and and so often <laughs> that's just not the case yeah, that's interesting because I, I come to UX from kind of a writing and editing and journalism background. And, and one of my favorite things, especially because uh, I occasionally teach a young writer's workshop and one thing I'm always telling them, and I, and I think usually this anecdote is attributed to Hemingway, but it's the notion of, of kill your darlings. Yes. Where like if you write something and it just seems so perfect and precious that you should just murder it outright because it's probably just in your own head. <laughs> And, uh, and in UX, it seems very true, especially when you're doing like these rapid prototypes. It's kind of a nice way to, to teach yourself to not, like you said, to not fall in love with every idea you have and to realize that uh, and it's true of writing, too, that that the product uh, doesn't really come into its own until it's 
uh, absorbed or taken on by someone else or used in this case, I guess, by, by a user. Absolutely. And, and having, having written four books, I can, I can totally relate to what you're saying. My, my first book took almost two years because partly because of my reluctance to, to kill my darlings and, and say, you know, this is so perfect. Why, why don't they like it? My editor is just really trying to change it. And, you know, there's a turtle struggle of the artist of, you know, trying to, you know, and then people were like, I just don't get that joke. It really sucks. You know, maybe I should really change that. I should consider changing that. So it took, it took two years, not because it took so long to write, but really because it took so long to realize that I needed to kill those early drafts and remove the, the, the bad stuff and really get to the core of what, what I'm trying to say. And the last book, The One Dollar Prototype, just took like three months to write, which is, uh, to my amazement, I actually interviewed, before I started this entire process of writing, I had a very memorable lunch with uh, uh, my hero, Luke Robluski. And uh, he told me a little bit, he, as, he, as he termed it, how the sausage is made. And, and he's like, well, just, just write this thing. You know, what, what you need, like three months, you know, that's three months is all you need to write a book. And I, was, I remember being shocked that it was really, you know, from, from the idea to, to an actual finish, if you have a really good team of, of editors, of course, and, and, and really good feedback loop with your target customers, it really should take that long. You should have everything set up and, and, and get it done. And this is my, my approach to design as well. You really should not need a couple of years to, to go from beginning to the end, especially in the mobile space. Because by the time, if you do take that time that we used to do uh, back you know, 15 years ago when I started this, we used to take that long to deliver a project. And we just simply can't afford to have that any longer. Because by the time you are, uh, you're, you're done with the project, the space has moved on. And if you're lucky, you've guessed 50, 50% or 30% of where the industry is going, but it would just be a guess. To give you an example of Android, for example, in in only two years, the Android moved from being really kind of the second runner-up to to Apple uh, to being really in the lead on the design race right now with the material design. And the material design is so different from the old Android, even from Android 4 that has just been there just a few months ago was the leading the leading OS and now to to the material design it's a completely different approach so all the best practices you've had a year ago you have to throw them out the window for example we we worked with uh, a couple of clients of ours to get their apps featured and we got six apps featured in the app store and it was by virtue of really closely reading the um the uh, manifest and the, uh, the the recommendations of Google and, and so forth. And one of the recommendations, as I vividly recall, was to put help and settings and logout into the overflow menu on the top action bar. And that was the one thing that, that people were just looking for to do to make their app feature ready. That's what Google required in their apps. And now that whole thing is just totally out the window with with material design, you you have this kind of effect of a junk drawer, I called it, 
where all the settings and uh, logout and various other things like disclaimers and so forth go into the drawer. And that was just anathema just a year ago. If you wanted to have your app featured, you would never do that. So the space is moving so quickly and things are changing. What we mean by best practices are changing so quickly. You simply can't afford to take more than about three, three to five months to launch a product from conception to the final app being in the store. And you better have your process lean and mean and very efficient if you want to be able to get there. Well, yeah, and I really like too that uh, you know using using this book, using this uh, this approach, you know, you can and you kind of outline it, I think, in a talk that you gave in Stockholm too, that you can uh, so you can basically um, do your sticky note prototype. You can take it to a coffee shop. You can get a bunch of feedback from people in line, and then you can take that feedback back to your design team, and potentially by the end of the day, have a you know a working digital prototype. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and this idea of really going to where the failure is, is the cheapest possible, fail, fail in the cheapest possible way, in the most efficient way that allows you to learn the most in the, in the shortest amount of time, is really, I think, very central to our practice right now. I think, I think we, have to, we have to do it this way. Because so many apps, when they are first released, they're used once and then Never used again. In fact, I think according to Comscore, the latest uh, numbers that were released, a full 41% of the apps are released, used once, and then never touched again by the customer. So imagine all that effort that you go into and then releasing the app and it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a complete disaster. So in order to avoid that, I think you really owe it to yourself to try to try a lot of a lot of interesting things and and uh, to fail in the prototype form where it's cheap and not wait to fail till you actually release the app god forbid it's a bit heartbreaking when when you put it that way but yeah all your hard work uh can be downloaded used once and then cast aside but uh i guess in a sense you could look at that as being kind of liberating too because as long as you're willing to move quickly and and to iterate and fail and do these things, uh, you know, you can be on to the next project or you can be working on a newer version of, you know, whatever was released before to try and make it stickier and make people want to use it more. So it's, yeah, it's, it's a, it's a messy, strange, chaotic marketplace. Um, but if, if you can go in with the, with the right flexibility and mindset, you can make a lot of things happen. You can affect a lot of change. Absolutely, absolutely, and I think that the reach of just mobile apps—if if you were to think just how far, uh, even things like Uber, just really, just a few months ago, nobody knew about this company, and just by virtue of having a different, new, interesting approach, they were able to catapult themselves to, to the top of uh, everybody's talking list, if you will. Uh, other apps like like Waze, for example, that nobody's ever heard of, it just they they just jump to the front. I've actually used Waze back in Israel when I visited Tel Aviv and and had the taxi driver pull this up, and I go, "Wow, this is this is really interesting." And and he's like, "Yeah, we got this great app, and it allows me to avoid all the traffic." And I go, "What a concept! That's really cool. I bet we could use that in California." And not six months go by, and and I actually see people 
people use it uh, more and more. Uh, so there's definitely room for new ideas. There, there's definitely the field is wide open still. Most of the apps out there are nowhere near the usability and the uh, capability that I actually would like to see out there. There's not like a finished space. Even things like email are being continuously reinvented. Uh, we're working with several companies right now that just particularly in the space of that communication and, uh, and either community communication or business communication that overwhelm that, that we all feel with checking different uh, different networks, right? Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and, uh, you know, don't forget the, 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 the Tumblr and, you know, everything else that you can look at. And that's email and phones and IM. So just dealing with that overwhelm that we're constantly subjected to. I think there's a ton that still can be done in the space. And I look forward to the next 10 years. It's a very exciting time. It really is. And uh, one thing that's cool, too, I think, about mobile design and just mobile technology in general is it's egalitarian and it is on both sides because, um, you know, not not everyone in the world can afford or would would find a desktop computer useful. And uh, on the flip side of that, to do traditional web design, you're not going to be able to do it with paper prototypes. You need more sophisticated tools, I think, to get to get started in in designing like websites and, and uh, web content and things like that. But with, with uh, mobile, uh, you know, it's, you're designing apps that kind of anyone can use in any part of the world. And so you're also, especially through things like paper prototypes, anyone in any part of the world can actually take part in designing these experiences and these apps, uh, which is, is really freeing and exciting. Absolutely. Who, who better to design an app for, for an Indian farmer uh, to check the price of wheat than their own son or daughter that have access to some code and maybe a, an emulator at their school and is able to put this together. It's it's really quite democratic and democratizing. I think it's very much in keeping with uh, participatory design principles that, that were put forth in, uh, in, in the Nordic countries back in the 80s and this is another reincarnation of that it's basically going back to the customer and involving the customer as the core of your design process really embedding yourself ethnographically in their world and using the prototypes as a conduit to really understand what their lives are and what they value and how to make them better and that is true from anywhere from busy Silicon Valley to you know Inuit Inuit tribes trying to find their way around the tundra. It's it it really <laughs> really doesn't matter. All it takes is is a couple of cell towers and you're up and running with a really inexpensive hardware. As I travel around the world, I see a lot of a lot of people out there using using really inexpensive phones that are now quite full-featured and, and very, very capable. They could run a little slower. The resolution quite isn't quite as good as like the latest Samsung or the latest Apple device, but they're just fantastic and, and really full-featured applications. And you can be a full-featured citizen of the world and contribute your voice to 
where we as humanity and as species really want to go and what do we want to be next as as this global village yeah and that element of design is is kind of inspiring too because i think one of the criticisms that's uh, often levied against technology um, is that maybe that it, it failed in its promise to kind of bring people closer together uh, because a lot of people now are just kind of have their noses buried in their devices and actually are forgetting how to interact with people just uh, verbally and physically but uh, but maybe through the back end through design uh, it really represents a way of, of combining of, of bringing people's needs and wants and desires together with technology and, and really like you're talking about like designing these technologies to make the most effective app you really need to get in deep with the people that are that you want to use it you have to you have to actually know them so so it's kind of nice that there there is an element of of technology that requires actual human interaction and and maybe in some way that can start spilling over onto the uh, consumer facing side as well but yeah absolutely and and what what was really interesting yesterday in our session with uh, with the students from Kazakhstan is is they were so focused on producing a, a beautiful deliverable. And, and when I explained to them what I wanted them to do with sticky notes, is that they took about 15 minutes because they came in with the ideas, right? You, you kind of have to picture what happened as they've been working on this idea for a couple of weeks now and as a team. And so they came in kind of thinking exactly what they were going to do. And they spent about 15 minutes drawing out their interface. And they're like, wait, are we done now? <laughs> Is that is that all there is? And I go, yes. Like now you can go into testing, and of course the interfaces weren't. You know, the first iteration was kind of like, well, it's not quite. You know what I would say is finished product, but this would have been enough for them to go test. And that's kind of what I told them. I said, yeah, this is now you just jump into testing and see see if your customers actually really care for this. And they were. Like, well, how about this menu? And, you know, we cut this little thing out and we use colored paper here. I go, you you could, but you don't really need to. Like, this is it's not going to add tremendous value. Uh, it may make you feel better and make you kind of look at your um, uh, look at your deliverable. It may improve your deliverable, but it's not going to improve the quality of communication with your customer. So this, this basic prototype, it, it really removes the the need to focus so much on beautifying the deliverable and really saying now that you're done let's just jump and test this and and you're right this this approach i think is really unique for uh, mobile and and wearables and small tablets because it it as we know paper prototypes don't don't work that well for web pages and you know full featured things like that it's it just isn't quite enough fidelity in the prototype to to convey what you need to convey. But on the other hand, it's just about perfect for mobile and wearables. As the screen is small and you use your finger and it's a very it's a very uh, fat fat finger kind of pointing device and there's not a lot of complexity that you can convey in the interface because the interface is, is uh, the interface space is so limited, the real estate is so limited. So I think it's a it's a really uh, lucky conversion, if you will, for us. And, and I'm really hoping that it will spark a revolution of 
really putting the customer as the focus of the design process. Because as much as we like to say that we are customer focused, most of the companies that we work with are not really. I mean, if they do a if they do a, a couple of usability tests a, a month, that's that does not make you a, a customer focused kind of kind of person. I think in my mind, customer focused really means being embedded with the customer, following them around, and and seeing what they do in their normal life and where they actually use your product. And with mobile, it's it's becoming even more important because you want to be contextual. You, you want to see where that product is actually being used. Is it a one-handed? Is it two-handed? Um, a lot of the stuff that St- Stephen Huber has put out about how people actually hold their phone seems seems um, seems that's very affected by where you are, and and we all know that from from our own experiences. And I'm I'm so glad that he he documented that. I, I've pointed several people to their to his studies about that because so many people think well they're just going to hold it like this and they're going to use two fingers and it's going to be wonderful and I was really shocked uh, I, and I'm kind of taking it off tangent a little bit but I was shocked by this uh, this uh, teenager this this high school student from Kazakhstan okay get this the first question he's asking me is he goes why why does the Android have action bar on the top because when I use my phone, I cannot stretch my finger that far. It's really awkward. I have to like move my fingers around and to in order to be able to tap those buttons over here. And he was really mad because his his phone is is updated, and uh, I think he was using a Windows phone actually. And the Windows phone has the same exact thing. And he's like, "Well, this application moved the bar from the bottom to the top, and now I can't." use it very easily because I have to stretch my fingers to reach it. And I'm like, my goodness, I've been teaching this now for seven years and really focusing on ergonomics and how people actually would handle the device. And here's a person that has not seen any of my talks and prezzos and and probably haven't read anything by Steve. And, and he comes in and that's the first question out of his mouth. And what a what a difference in perception with this new clientele that you guys uh, are designing for. I mean, these people are not just taking what you're pushing down, down the pipe. These people are really thinking, acting, uh, active participants in their digital experience. It's not the same old. These people are very savvy. Yeah, and I mean, that's not the type of insight you're likely to get locked away in a, in a design room somewhere, you have to be out interacting with people. And, and like you said, watching exactly how they're using their devices and that, that it's cool. Yeah. And Steven Huber, he's written many great articles for uh, UX magazine, uh, and several of them on mobile technology and just the, the tapestry of, of, uh, yeah, of different ways that people use it and not just the screen, but as far like what you're saying, like the way they actually hold them and how their fingers are able to move while they're still holding the device. It's, there's just so many variables. It's intriguing. Uh, and I, and I liked, um, in the book too, I like how you discuss, you know, that you, you kind of equate design to improvising and that as long as you know where you're going with the design, then you you kind of are free to, to play around and make those mistakes and, and have fun. Uh, a- absolutely. I'm so glad you mentioned that because that was the one, the one thing that I, 
always uh, kind of ask people to take on faith to, to create their storyboard to separate the what they're trying to build from the how they're trying to build it. And we always start out with a storyboard, even if you already have a project running. And yesterday, again, I've confirmed it thousands of times. And every time we we have not built a storyboard and have not really nailed down our vision, and it doesn't have to be a storyboard. You can write it as a vision on the page, but it just happens to be the way it works really well and it's uh, it's very easy to put together as a storyboard. But every time we have not taken the time to do it, it, it really had guaranteed having to go back and, and do a very expensive rework. Because if you don't know where you're going, how do you know that you actually got there? It's sort of this Alice in Wonderland thing. And, you know, when, when she asked, how do I, how do I get out of here? And, and the queen says, well, where do you want to go? Well, Alice says, well, I don't know exactly. And she says, well, go anywhere then. Because if you don't know where you're going and where the product will be used and what will the effect be and you're just playing around with technology, well, it really doesn't matter which way you proceed. You absolutely need to have a vision and you need it uh, to show the vision to your stakeholders and have them con- have them um, uh, make sure that, that they approve it. Have them approve it. And then take that vision, take that storyboard and take it to the customer. And say, does that make sense to you? Do you actually do this? And if the feedback you get, well, I don't usually do that, but my neighbor might, over there, he might actually do that. And the more you hear that type of feedback, the more it's like, really? That's not really what you want to be building. That's going to be one of those apps that's used once and never touched again. So you may not want to spend the time to even make the prototype. You have to get the vision to a very compelling point in this day and age because you you got almost two million two million apps now, and that's just in the U.S. If you had China and India, you, you're talking uh, you're talking several million apps, and those cover uh, a lot. And these are just the apps, right? You're talking you, you got websites, you got mobile friendly uh, various uh, various applications that are out there. Different additions and hooks, and you really need to have a compelling use case in order to really justify even the effort of designing it. So, having the vision, separating the what you're trying to build from the how you're trying to build it, is liberating and is wonderful. And that's really where it really opens up, I think, your design space because you'd see your constraints very clearly when you know what you're building. Yeah, I mean, a, a great app idea is pretty much useless if you can't put it into some sort of useful context. So, uh, and, and yeah, like your book uh, beautifully points out, like storyboard, storyboarding is a really great way of doing that and also then communicating that context to stakeholders and to users. So it's, and it's fun. You get to draw pictures. Exactly. And once you've done it a couple of times, it really doesn't take more than about 15, 20 minutes of focused attention with your team to document some key use cases. It, uh, using pictures really awakens a part of the brain that is so rarely accessed, and it, it's very liberating. It, uh, it also makes you realize that there are so many ways that you can accomplish this once you separate the what from the how, because you may have 
uh, as as designers, some a lot of the people that I work with, they they come to the table and they go, well, we need to have this this drawer in there, and and they just kind of get fixated on a particular interface element, and when they take the time to express their vision and really look at it and focus on on the task, they go back and say, well, wait a minute, that whole drawer idea isn't going to be very useful because we're going to be using voice or we're going to have a wearable component to this that is going to be really critical to accomplishing this task. Uh, and that entire perspective changes. You, you end up taking this this 10,000 foot view that is is uh, extremely enlightening as to what the different options are available because there are a lot of options uh, out there in the way that you can either take the data in or uh, uh, or put the data out and it, the context is really going to drive a lot of your design decisions absolutely uh, you know I really like too that you you mentioned uh, Kevin Cheng's book see what I mean uh, I, I have that book and read that book and uh, after I read it, spent at least a few hours just sitting and drawing faces. And for the next few weeks, because he has a he has a great uh, and it's in your book, like kind of a, a layout of different faces and different expressions. And it shows just how, you know, little minute changes to the eyebrows or the position of the mouth can convey emotion. Um, and not only is it fun to sit and just doodle faces all the time, it, it also speaks to something else you talk about, which is uh, material design. And, and, and I think this, this idea of, of having a tactile design process, like of sitting down with pen and paper and drawing and starting there, um, it brings something to the table. And, and you mentioned too, like, yeah, like material design was created using actual bits of paper and pieces of wood. It was, it was actually fabricated with real objects. Um, and, and I think, you know, I think that shows up in, in its digital representation and in its functionality and in the way it kind of makes sense to people. I think it has something to do with the fact that it started as an object. Absolutely. I, I want to give a shout out to, to Kevin Chang's book as well. And, and, uh, to Lou Rosenfeld and Rosenfeld media for allowing us to, uh, replicate some of the, some of the graphics, uh, in, in the $1 prototype book. Uh, I, I mean, Kevin. Kevin is a is an artist. I, you know, I, I always feel like such a hack even talking about it <laughs> when Kevin comes up because he's he is uh, in a completely different level and and uh, uh, another 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 guy that that I that I really uh, admire and respect is Scott McCloud. And Scott's book is is a real classic. Making comics. He's got a trilogy of of books about comics. That uh, uh, making comics, understanding comics, and, and just just really a classic, uh, classic book that is written as a comic. So that that was a true, I think, inspiration for all of us. And Kevin's book is really taking taking this concept of a comic and uh, putting it in the context of user experience and design work, in particular, and exploring a lot of the things that we're talking about, visioning and and understanding how people would use the application in context. And communicating within the company, so I highly recommend recommend it. And yeah, there's there's another great book too uh, called Drawing Ideas. It's by Mark Baskinger and uh, Will Bardell, I believe. Um, and it, it's just a beautiful book to look at. And it, uh, I mean, those guys can really draw circles around 
well, definitely around me, <laughs> a yeah, lot of people, but it's around me as well. Yeah. But it's a very inviting book. And, uh, it's been one of my promises to myself that one of these uh, days I'll spend a week or yeah, yeah, I'll spend a week just sitting and going through that book and trying all the exercises and developing skills, those kind of skills, sketching skills, because, uh, as that book points out and as the books that you've been talking about point out, like there, there's a lot of value in being able to communicate that way, like through drawing and you, you can get ideas across that you're not going to be able to articulate with words, um, you know, to stakeholders and to, to potential users. So there's huge value there. Uh, absolutely. And, 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 um, I, I always like to joke in my, in my workshops that what makes me good at teaching this is because I really, I really suck at drawing. And, uh, if you can, if you can follow what I do, then you can still communicate really well uh, using the comics, then you surely, in your own practice, can do a lot better. So that's kind of what I wrote. I, I said, you know, don't, don't look at these as something to match, but something to really use as a springboard in your own practice and, and to definitely beat on a first or second, second uh, attempt. And, and really, I think it shows how little ability you need to put this to work for you. And that's really what this is about. It's it's very, very practical and, and very actionable. And and I think that's exactly where material design and, and and Google's own approach to material design I think really shines. Is is uh, I was talking to uh, one of the people that uh, at Google that that is running their their program of hands-on prototyping at the Google I.O. And, and did all the did all the work there. And she didn't give me permission to to talk about the, the conversation too much and uh, to, uh, to talk, give her name and all of that. But suffice it to say that there were a lot of people at the Google I.O., including several friends of mine, and what they observed was was that these people would come up and very hesitantly try out, try out uh, different different approaches, and even practice the transitions. Even just from that standpoint of is this is this a valid new transition design that I can that I can put forth in my in my application. So rather than focusing on the code, they would really literally take you know, 10, 15 minutes to mock up their application using sticky notes and various other paper components just to see if it if it gels together if if it makes sense and several people told told them that it it would take them months to code this and now and and the reason why it would take them months to code something is because they would code it and not like what they saw and then go back and redo it and then do it all over again and so forth. So a lot of iterations that, that were happening in their work were happening in code. And literally by spending 15 minutes doing simple sticky note exercises, they came up with a new transition method that that would fit perfectly with, with their concept. And they tried out three or four different designs and they were able to reject them and come up with something that they liked. So, and just imagine that's just the the mock-up part you can use that for testing as well when you add the testing option to this you really improve the quality of your output 
tremendously just by orders of magnitude. It's it's really something you you owe it to yourself to try it out. Yeah, I mean, cause, because by by removing the risk and the the cost, you uh, make way for efficiency, and then I think, as you mentioned, that paves the way for beauty. That's that's how you arrive at these eventually beautiful designs is by giving yourself efficiency to do so. And uh, just just to uh, to briefly, uh, so we we haven't we've talked a lot about your book, but we haven't uh, maybe discussed kind of the main the main uh, thrust of it. And that is that you can, you can create these paper mobile prototypes using two packs of sticky notes and a pencil. And that's essentially all you need to, to build a little stable of uh, prototypes and take them out and test them in the real world. Absolutely. And, and I think that the biggest kind of insight for me was that when we design as designers, we do so on paper and, and whiteboard and uh, in the morning in the shower uh, in our heads you know we don't we don't really design in in omnigraphle or fireworks or whatever your tool of choice this is documentation and so if you truly separate design from documenting then you can look at what's the most efficient way to design it well the most efficient way to design would be to create a prototype along along the way so you don't spend the time then to take your design give it to somebody else or create your own prototype and take photos of that and put hot spots and all of that kind of deal well it just so happens that with the mobile prototypes the sticky notes if you use sticky notes for designing that becomes your prototype so you kill two birds with one stone to use the trite expression and your designs can be immediately put to the test in fact, there's no reason to wait at all. I in, in the book, I recommend as soon as you have three or four uh, sticky notes worth of designs just and the storyboard, jump right into testing. See what the customers actually think about your, your designs. And uh, if they tap something that you haven't built yet, you can always ask them the usual question, what would you expect to happen here? And then pause, draw that screen, and then the next person would actually get the screen that you've envisioned. So there isn't really any break there. It's it's definitely more of a conduit because you're not spending as much time with your deliverables. You it's all part of the it's all part of the process, and you involve the customer directly in the design process, and and you're immersed right there in in their world while you're doing this. Uh, and you can draw less, a lot of the stuff in the field. Right there in a coffee shop where you're doing the testing. You can pause, draw the next screen, and off you go. Yeah, and I think that's a great suggestion, too, to to, to go to a crowded coffee shop and present your prototypes to people in line because it's, it's like the perfect little window of time that you would expect someone to engage with an app, like the three to five minutes while they're waiting to order. And then, you know, like you mentioned, if you go in the morning, they're usually kind of cranky anyway, and they haven't had their caffeine yet, so they're, they're going to be quick to tell you what they don't like. They're not going to, they're less likely to, to give you pleasantries and then you treat them to a cup of coffee and there you go. That's right. It, it really removes that whole, you know, we spent two months scheduling this guy and he spent an hour traveling to our usability lab. And then we present them with this 
prototype that it took three months to build for us, and we scraped around the resources around the company to to make this meeting happen. So by golly, we're going to use and we're going to squeeze this person dry uh, for the two hours that we have them. And it just removes that. If you're if you meet somebody and they're really not that into it, you just give them the coffee and send them on their way. And if you meet somebody who's really really into it, then you ask them, well, how much would you pay for it? And all these other wonderful, really valuable questions uh, that I wrote about in the in the in the article on um, uh, the UX mag. So I think there's once you remove this kind of treasury of of uh, heavy process you open up the human connection which is really what design is i think is all about well yeah and then again yeah it just kind of speaks to what we were talking about with this this kind of egalitarian notion of of mobile technology and mobile design that uh, it's it's really is kind of for everyone and everyone can take part in creating it and refining it um and yeah i mean i think i think that's Maybe the one thing I find most exciting about this book and about uh, about mobile technology in general is that it's all hands on deck. Absolutely, and and now that it, it was funny because right after I've written finished the book and it's been published, the another revolution happened. All the wearables suddenly came out. You know, you got you got Android Wear and and uh, of course the Apple Watch and and suddenly there's this whole other problem. Well, it's not really a problem for this. For this uh, methodology at all, because it's so lightweight, you can just take a smaller sticky note and these little uh, 1.78 inch by one and a half inch things. You don't need special sticky notes that look like a watch. You don't really need to do that at all. There's nothing extra to buy. You can just go to the store and get the the typical rectangular ones that that um, uh, are small enough to kind of act like a watch. And if you really feel like it, you can tape it to a uh, uh, an old watch band, and you can ask your participants to wear that. And right there, off you go. You have a a prototype of a watch that you can use exact same methodology for. And and the small screen, the small sticky note is going to ensure that you only add the detail that you can add to a real a real screen uh, of a watch or uh, or an Android Wear type of device. Uh, somebody asked me the other day if you could use this for Google Glass or something similar that they were building. And uh, and I said, well, although I haven't seen that actually done and that would be kind of difficult to put it in front of their eyes, you could probably still use the same methodology, just put it on a table and, and not put it in, in, in front of their eyes. So they would wear the device, it would be kind of a Wizard of Oz type of situation where they would uh, manipulate the glass that they would wear, or like a glass frame, and then you would change the prototype on the table that they would be looking at. So they would see the results of their action, but it would not be necessarily uh, directly looking at a pack of sticky notes in front of their face. I think that would be pretty awkward. But you can still use the same the same low-tech method. And, and the reason for it is really is, is as our sophistication of our machines increases and and we take them further along with us if you will they're now residing on our wrists and in front of our eyes and in our cars while we're driving 
the sophistication of the machine is increasing, but the interface is getting more and more simpler and uh, uh, easier to easier to use, if you will, in many ways. And and that's what you can capture. That's what allows us to use that method now to to capture uh, that multi multi channel feedback. Uh, you're capturing their ergonomics, and you're capturing all their movements, all their facial expressions, everything that is awkward about the way that they communicate with your app, and and also capturing whether the app is doing what they actually expect and want in their lives. So I, I think it's it's a really it's a really nice gift that keeps on giving and is is fairly flexible, and you can use it with all the latest greatest stuff. If that's what you, if yeah, that's what you that, need that, for that is project. the funny thing about it is that uh, the technology is more sophisticated than ever, but uh, you know it's more sophisticated than ever. The technology, but like you said, um, the methods of interacting with it are actually becoming simpler, and you can use much less complex techniques to design for it. So, um, so so what's the the best way to get the book is to just head to designcaffeine.com. Is that right? That's right. Uh, uh, get to designcaffeine.com and click on books and uh, you can buy it right there. Uh, you can also get it on Amazon if, if you want, but if you get it on my site, it's the same price and you can get all three formats, including PDF and Kindle and uh, iBooks. And yeah, and if for, if for some reason you're still not sure if you want the book, I also encourage you to go to, to uxmag.com and we have a great article uh, that Greg put together called how to perform your own lean mobile usability testing uh, it's on the site and it has a lot of the same great information that's in the book and covers some of the things we've talked about here today so so greg i i do thank you for taking the time this morning to chat it's been really great and um yeah everyone go check out his book the one dollar prototype thank you josh it's my pleasure thank you All right, thanks for listening to our conversation with Greg Noodleman. Thanks, Greg, for taking the time. Head over to designcaffeine.com, pick up your copy of The $1 Prototype. Be sure to visit uxmag.com, too. We're always publishing fresh content that will deepen your understanding of experience design. We're on Twitter, at uxmag. Until next time. <laughs>